0: Welcome to the Front Arte y Cultura Podcast. The Front is an active art gallery, arts educational space, concert and meeting venue. Run by Casa Familiar at the heart of San Isidro, California, it stands just one mile away from the international border of San Diego and Tijuana, Mexico.
1: We want to say thanks to the National Association for Latino Arts and Culture for their support into making this project possible.
0: Now as our fourth episode, we wanted to bring you back to our past exhibition titled And We Will Sing in a Tall Grass Again, which we were just finished setting down from its closing. For those listening back on the air, we are referring to our past collaborative exhibition with co-curators Alan Luna and Julie Chu. This exhibit brought many themes to the gallery that specified the futurities of gender, self-expression, and the importance of identity in the post-colonial world. But now that we've closed our doors to its feature, we wanted to share with you some commemorative insights that we've collected from the curators and artists themselves as a way to look back to its feet. Unfortunately, Julie Chu was not available for an interview, but their contribution to the exhibition was invaluable. Moving forward, Alan Luna, one of the co-curators, will explain how a non-binary theme became a post-colonial theme, a message that developed throughout the exhibition. Then we'll hear from participating artists Larissa Rogers and Jackie Mesquita, who describe the installation defining how the shadows of colonialism still live among us in the present day. Then jumping back from their feature, we move on to Kay Clark, another featured artist from the exhibition, who with her piece, she connects how time loops past, present, and future as to close the possible futurities of expression in our humankind. So without further ado, we will transition on to our co-curator Alan Luna and the themes of their
1: past exhibition. Take it away Alan. My name is Alan Ian Luna. I was born in 1995 here in San Diego. I lived in Tijuana for a long time and since then moved here to San Diego where I went to school and majored in art history and studio art practice at UCSD, having graduated in 2019. Um, I currently now live in Los Angeles, but I've been commuting back and forth in order to like facilitate and curate this exhibition that I worked on with my co-collaborator, Winter Smiley, um, over the course of the last several months. Uh, we didn't actually know each other before we started collaborating. We were brought together by Francisco. Um, but you know, since then we like, came up with, like, a working practice together that sort of made this happen. The name of the show is uh, And We Will Sing in the Tall Grass Again. So it's, like, this whole sentence. That's the title of the exhibition. Um, And I say that it's an extension of my practice because the show as an exhibition deals with a lot of the same issues that I explore in my work as an artist, you know, and they're issues of... In memory, in time, in identity, or how identity isn't real—like uh, the legacies of colonialism and how it still organizes the way that we understand ourselves and each other—and what sort of features can we build from new understandings of the body and of what you could call identity and culture? You know. So that's why I say that to me, like the the exhibition is an extension of my art practice because it deals a lot of some ideas, but in a Instead of it being about my own work, it's, I'm, I'm creating a community of works from other artists, sort of like practices, to sort of draw similarities, and also tensions, you know? Because I think contradiction is something that is very powerful, you know? Yeah. To me, I connect the issue of non-binary identity into deeper sort of like contentions about history and about identity, you know? Um, we started out by looking at historical examples, for example, of what you could call non-binary identities. I mean, we, I say you could because, again, these are labels that were invented. Modern labels, not Exactly, and very, very specific, with a very specific cultural context. But, you know, like the mushes of Oaxaca, for example, could be called a non-binary identity. The, the Histras of, of like India, for example, are another non-binary identity. Um, Or even in European history, you know, you had people who were non-binary and, like, sort of bucking trends that way. Um, So we were just, like, looking at that, but then realizing that the history of non-binary identity is also the history of colonial resistance, you know? Mm -hmm. So then that's where we realized the scope of this exhibition is wider than what we are starting out with. So that's where, in a way, like, the non-binary element kind of took back seat to things. But not really, not entirely. It was always, like, in our thoughts. But really... Because,
2: like, colonialism is just omnipresent?
1: It is, absolutely. Um, in everything. That's what I mean about um, the regimenting force of colonialism. You know, it really reorganized the ways in which we think about ourselves. You know, it we have are so gaslit into <laughs> thinking that things are, some things are real. For example, race is patently untrue, but we just accept it as being a truth, you know, even though it's not. Or um, gender, gender is not real, but like, why do we accept these things as being something that reflects reality when it's really not, you know? Um, so that's that's where like the inception of the show and its current scope sort of came about, you know? Um, being able to look at works that deal with gender identity, quote-unquote, you know, um, with racial identity, again, quote-unquote, um, ecology, issues of sustainability, of craft, of the earth, you know, and uh, we, we chose these artists because there are these like links between them that connect the works to each other, you know, um, like the poetics of the soil, I think is a big part of like what is going on in the show. If you notice in the exhibition, there's a lot of works with, with literal dirt as part of them, but they each speak to the idea of dirt differently, you know. Sometimes it's um it's more of like as a decorative element, you know, like in like uh the Re- Reno's piece. Um but in Larissa's piece, for example, there's a very real resonance, you know. The soil speaks to history, to bodies, to action, you know, and to the, places even. Exactly, yeah. Um and I think that's very powerful. And in Larissa and Jackie's
0: words,
3: so the installation is titled A Poetic of Living, and that um, installation, it began in Virginia, um, but it, the title was really, um, it kind of like stems from a Kevin Klosche book, but it, it's, it's, it stems from a quote when it's kind of like starting to think about like, what does it mean um, to think about Black aliveness given how readily um, Black people are indexed to death? Um, so like thinking about like what it means, um, to, to be alive and especially in kind of like the moment that we're living in and how can we think about that in relationship to how we are remembering those who have, um, who have passed away, who were killed, who were murdered, um, who were living in these circumstances who weren't given. The care or tenderness or regard while they were living. Like, how can we start to think about that when we're thinking about how we're remembering them or memorializing? Um, and and so this what this installation is is soil from Virginia, sourced from Penn Park, and that was a plantation that had these forty three unmarked slave graves. And so the soil um, I kind of guerrilla styled and took the soil <laughs> from, from that location, from that golf course, and um, used it in the installation and cast my body kind of um, out of that soil um, and started to grow um, celosia on it, like thinking kind of like about the history um, that, or like the present day, um, kind of like resources, knowledges, um, acts of resistance, of care that has grown kind of like from, you know, that has grown from like these enslaved people. Um, And so that's where the installation began. And then when it came to the gallery space here, um, really thinking about the shared history between the black community and between um, the Latinx community, especially here in Los Angeles. And so Border Soil was also introduced. Um, and so there's, there's, um, four, four, um, you know, bodies that were cast, um, and placed within kind of like the soil. Um, and so that was kind of like the foundation of this, um, performance and, um...
2: Really quickly, when you say you gathered soil from both Virginia and the border How, did you guys just go and get shovels and just like dig soil up or very much guerrilla style yes very much,
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> it's very yeah. much like 3am yeah. digging it, soil yeah. from these places yeah. um Cause I think something that Jackie and I both think about a lot is labor Mm -hmm. and, um, and this invisible labor and who, whose labor is producing, producing this leisure and whose, um, and I think that was something that we were both kind of like thinking about. Um, just in general, and then maybe Jackie can talk a little bit more about, like, the, the performance.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, um, it was my first time in the space, and, um, you know, in seeing Larissa's work in person in Los Angeles, and um, seeing this, like, empty space in, in her installation, and being like, oh, wait, like, it's me seeing bodies, and I think, Larissa,
3: it's me seeing our bodies. (laughs) Yeah, because I think one thing that we've both been talking about is, like, how this, like, when we're thinking about, especially, like, we're thinking about the afterlife of of slavery or, like, the afterlife of this... of kind of like these systems of colonization it is it's, it's definitely not just like something in the past it's something mm-hmm. that's present mm-hmm. it's something that's going so that while we are talking about where this has like originated from the histories of that within the soil it's also something that we are currently living and so like making that connection i think just made sense for both of us being like okay like, yes, these bodies are stand ins for all of the ones that we have lost, all of the ones before us, but it's also, you know, us. us, Yeah. Um, so it really just made sense.
4: Yeah. And I think we saw the opportunity at that moment where we could, um, you know, look in the direction of the border and look at the direction, you know, uh, one looking at the border and then the other one looking at the opposite direction. And how um, our bodies were like touching, but the part that that we were using a lot, it was our arms. Like our arms were um, together or we were holding hands and we were lifting our upper body up. So I, I was with my strength and with Larissa's strength, we worked together like lifting each other up to care for our bodies. And, and, um... And it, it, I, I feel that it was it was something really beautiful because it it was something I was it, it's this other layer of the skin, but it's also this um, kind of cleansing and
3: and like renewing. So I think like in in the performance, um, it's and it's intervening with this installation by us. Um, first this this wasn't announced so we kind of had a, a time where we we're like okay we're going to start the performance at this time so we're mm-hmm. just going to kind of like start and we'll just kind of like keep an eye on each other so we know when we're starting um but it, it began by us um finding this pl- this place in in the installation where like bodies felt like they they were missing and making kind of like a mud using water,
1: um, mm-hmm.
3: making a mud, um, stripping, stripping kind of like down. So um, so we, so we renewed. I think it was also important because as um, women of color, especially within like something like a white cube space, we were thinking a lot about, you know, we, us as 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 women as brown women's, our bodies are very often um, spec. Um, we're very much a spectacle a lot of times and like thinking about the history of performance and like thinking about how we don't want this to be something that that um how or like how can we how can we create layers of safety um within that um you know how do we not become a spectacle how do we have some sort of um you know like control over like the situation especially within a white cube space that has a history of like certain type of bodies being welcomed and part of that for us was it's it's an intervention it's something that's not announced it's like they're witnesses to Mm -hmm. this event we are in charge of this space Mm -hmm. um so i think that was something that was important And so while we are kind of like stripping um, and creating this mud to then bathe ourselves and bathe one another in and lay in, thinking about rest, and then lifting each other up and with Jackie's body being positioned toward the border and my body being positioned um, towards uh, the opposite direction. direction, it was very kind of like symbolic thinking about like the crossing of borders, the linking of borders, and also thinking about kind of how like this history of nomadicism of migration is one that is inherently, um, inherently kind of like uh, D like thinking about, if we're thinking about borders, we're thinking about land as possession, we're thinking about being able to like name and saying like, I am from here, but like through this action, of crossing a border or, like, or, um, of migration, it's inherently kind of, like, going against that colonial idea of, like, land as possession, going against, like, this, um, it's an act of refusal, um, so, like, we were thinking about kind of, like, all of these things and this action of, like, caring for one another's bodies and then it, then me offering the Seleucia to Jackie to plant and then burying my body in the soil, Mm -hmm. um, thinking about kind of like the soil as a womb Mm -hmm. so not 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 as like a burial like a wake but thinking it more of like an incubation as a period or Mm -hmm. like a a way to reconnect to rejuvenate a place of rest Mm -hmm. um that regenerates um that, that
4: that also thinking about um you know the ephemeral but not the ephemeral that just happens and then it's done like the ephemeral that happens it transforms it becomes something else
1: that piece is interesting because it is literally alive you know like it lives in the gallery it has caused an insect infestation in the space oh infestation is a strong word but like there's stuff def- you know like it the like the white cube gallery is just supposed to be alive that way you know um, but so
2: like, clinical
1: though Yeah, absolutely, and I like that like, don't, I like the white cube, don't get me wrong I like other things as well, but like, I think there's something to be said about the white cube and its flexibility mm-hmm. You know, the neutrality of the space Well, or the supposed neutrality, because nothing in this life is neutral, of course mm-hmm. Because everything is like Somebody's trying to make us feel something in a certain way But I do like the white cube in that sense but uh, I also like the interrup- like the transgression that comes with like having a piece like that in that space is, is interesting. Yeah. And I don't know if the front's necessarily like a white cube in the same way because it's it's more of a community space, you know. It's which I think is what a gallery should aspire to be more than just a place to exhibit artworks, but a place that is a resource for the community, you know.
2: So tell me, well, tell me a little bit before you go deeper into that. What, what we can see uh, in this show? The artists, the types of art that you can see. Like, you can walk in and see what, yeah. You know.
1: Okay, so you walk into the exhibition, and to your right, there's a doorway that has three distinct exhibition spaces. One is an installation of photographs by Chump. Right next to it is a little alcove that has an installation that has plants and video pieces by Carolina Montejo. And to the far right, there is an installation that has a wall text, uh, by El Sol del Rack. and if you go back and you keep going down, there's an installation by Edgar Fabian Frias that are these like three hanging curtains with a rug and a television. Right next to that is um, is Jocelyn and Kyoko Takanaka's five photographs. And if you keep going around the room clockwise, um, you hit um, uh, Israfil's like wall like poems that are like you know these like mimeograph pieces. I love the poems. Yeah, they're they're lovely. Um, and then we have Armando Cortes's video piece, where it's the three channels of the of the cant that was being broken. Right next to that is uh, Kate Clark's very beautiful Venus de Milo or Venus of Willendorf sculptures that are like cast in different types of resin. Um,
2: I was telling Kate Clark uh, that her piece is something that I also was very much attracted to because it's such a... it begs big, to be touched. It begs to be
4: exactly because
1: that's what they like. Those statues are. Some theories say that they are supposed to be those, like these tactile maps. Like they're like these like tactile imagings of the human body. You know that you're supposed to like, touch them and that gives you an insight into this body. I don't I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, and I guess she writes about that too in her statement.
0: And in Kate Clark's words.
5: Um. Well, the Venus of Willendorf is really interesting. And the reason why she's called that, and I don't even, I don't know what pronouns to use. So I tend to just switch the pronouns, um, because to me there is something that's more than just like they, she is definitely not it as in terms of just being an object and that's all. Um, but, um, many people call her the Venus of Willendorf, um, she was made 25,000 years ago, um, carved by another human and um, then eventually was buried or was dug up 25,000 years later in what is now present day Austria in an area called uh, Willendorf or Willendorf. Um, and so that's why she named that because that's where she was found. Um which is interesting because uh, she was she's kind of of an era of lots of what some, some people call are of like fertility figures, like all of these bodies with really like pendulous breasts and large hips and bellies that were found throughout um central europe and and turkey um that have been excavated and and many archaeologists that are, you know have theories about what her, their role was for, but really nobody knows and and that's what I think is interesting about them and why I wanted to make a series of sculptures that kind of iterated on her, um, the way that she was uh, treated with different materials.
2: So we've all seen the sculptures here uh, in the gallery and you have, what is it, like seven? displayed is that correct and uh they all look kind of different i mean the the sculpture itself is the same right it's this very Mm -hmm. femme looking uh maybe a woman um but you know you have like one of them has is brown colored with like a sandy texture the other one looks like a porcelain color, the other one looks like a, 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 a it's like a jade, a red jade I don't know mm-hmm. even know if that is a thing It's
0: like a golden one too And a
2: golden one, yeah, so what what took you to make different types of the same figure?
5: I was just thinking about
2: how,
5: like I've worked in a lot of museums and I've, and I've done lots of projects in relationship with artifacts and um, was thinking about how like with this figurine specifically, I grew up with a figurine of the Venus with Willendorf in my house and was always fascinated with it. Um, and just wondering about um, their life line um, of what kind of life they lived 25,000 years ago. And then what was their life like, you know, underground. <laughs> and then, Just the fact to me, it seems kind of so sad and stunted in a way that they just ultimately get excavated by somebody and then put into a display case in kind of a state of arrested development. Um, And so in a way, these sculptures are are sort of different explorations of potential histories or futures that this artifact could have had. Um, And it, it makes me think a little bit about how, like, um, more familiar uh, feminized figures um, such as the Virgin Mary. Um, she has been iterated upon so many times. There's the Black Virgin, there's you know the the Virgin of Guadalupe. like there's so many different versions. She's decorated in so many different ways. She's had so many material transformations and treatments and meanings. Um, Because she's been able to live with people for so long um, in their homes, in their churches, in restaurants. Um, And so, in a way, I was thinking about, like, well, what could she have had? Could the Venus of Willendorf have had that life in a different world? (laughs) Um, And so, these are each sculpture is like a little experiment in a possible way she could have lived with us or be living with us right now and i think for me that's interesting just because regardless of of their gender um their body type is so voluptuous is so celebratory is nude (laughs) except for like a hat (laughs) um or like a beautiful like braid treatment um that there's something that to me because of you know patriarchy um there was there just wasn't a way for to her for her to have that life um in our home with us these past few thousand years um though she did 25,000 years ago she was excavated in an area that would have been the household hearth cuz they found like ashes and like bits of bone from eating and stuff like that um, so I kind of wanted to resuscitate that feeling of like, what if she were a daily figure with us?
0: So being being asked by Alan and being told I'm sure you were told about the the theme and the message behind it, what made okay. you connect to, you know, the Venus of Willendorf to be a part of this exhibition?
5: I I tend to when people invite me to participate in shows about or exhibits or projects about the future to want to do stuff about the past. Um, Just because that's how I think is, and, and, and like relate to the world is like, it's moving in loops. And so like, what are some of the loops from the past that we can
2: pull into the future?
5: So it seemed like a natural connection.
2: That's an interesting concept that, you know, connecting the past with the present, you know, if we do move in loops, your Venus of Willendorf might be excavated, you know, maybe 5,000 years from now if we're still alive then. What do you think, Yeah. what do you want people to, what would you like people to kind of take from that?
5: If if an archaeologist finds this in the future, um, it makes me think a little about how once I was interviewing an archaeologist who was saying that the interesting thing about this time that we're living in right now is almost... All of our objects are out of context, um, except for like our porcelain bathtubs, or excuse me, our cast iron bathtubs, like the American standard um, brand, um, and and then IKEA stuff is within this context. But but if you go into people's houses, you know, family heirlooms, um, all of these antique objects. Um, Objects that people are finding in other countries from different time periods—it's all so confusing that it's kind of funny um, to think about what that says about um, what we value and 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 how we'll be interpreted in the future based on our objects. And so, to me, it would be funny if if these figurines get excavated in the future and some people interpret, oh, maybe there was an emergence of a small fertility cult in (laughs) Isidro. Nice. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe, (laughs) guys.
1: You know, I wrote this text for the exhibition that sort of talks about really, really, like, the the deepest, for me at least, issue at play in the show is the issue of time, you know? Um how it is that time is this, like, vast ocean of unknowns, you know? But also time as, as a force of resistance, you know? Because when you think about imperialism and colonialism, not just in its recent, like, manifestation, like, in the 19th, Like, you know, with the Europeans sort who of a project of colonialism, but, like, any colonial project eventually collapses on itself because of the sheer weight of its endeavor, you know? Time is a very powerful... Ally on the side of the oppressed. It's a bitter ally too, because you know often we don't live to see the resistance or like the, the fall of these things. But you know, I, I often think of uh, of the discourse around Mayan culture, for example. Um, you know, a lot of prestige is given to Mayan culture because, oh my God, like these temples and the cities and the jungle and like the the jewels and like the luxury. You know, all these things that we identify as being valuable, exactly, or quote-unquote civilization, you know. It's things that you can identify with because they're the trappings of an authoritarian society. Cities are authoritarian projects when they evolve in certain ways, you know. Um, so then like a lot of people are like, oh, well, like, what happened to the Mayans? Why did their civilization collapse, you know? But like, the cities are there. They're not destroyed. They're just buried, you know. They're under the jungle now. And part of me wants to think that, like, people had the capacity to say enough of this you know we don't want this for ourselves anymore Mm -hmm. and they left their cities behind because you know you go and you know the mayan people are there and they live in their villages and towns and a lot of
2: not in the temples anymore
1: exactly they, they they the cities aren't there i mean some were you know we have registers of like inhabited mayan cities during like spanish contact um or even like that were fortresses and resistances during certain conflicts but you know, like it's it's spoken about like oh like the, the mine collapse, and it's like disparaging of like, oh look at them now, like living in their like thatch huts and stuff. And I'm not saying this in any way to be like, oh my like, god, you know, like that this is some sort of ideal situation or that even know what really happened, but you know, there's this theory that Maya civilization quote unquote collapsed because of ecological pressures, you know. To build their cities they would mine rock and they would make a lot of of uh, what do you call it? Of stucco, of gesso, you know. And to do that you need to you need to mine a lot of lime out of like this of the soil and you need to burn a lot of wood, you know, to calcify it and turn it into, you know, a building material. So they think that that caused a lot of ecological stress on them, you know? So it, linking back to this like sort of like hope of mine that people saw the destruction that the lifestyle of the rulers was causing made them be like, Hey, we don't need this, like what did we just like? go live with the way that we lived before you know and they abandon their rulers with all their jade jewelry and their jaguar skin clothes and their feather dresses headdresses you know because we live in that now like our civilization as a human project across the globe you know if we're staring down the barrel of the gun you know the world is on the precipice of never being the same you know at least as at least for us the world is dying around us in very tragic ways And I I hope that we can have that moment of clarity where we think this isn't worth it, you know, in the long run, you know, that we can step back. But I I just don't know.
2: So you think it's the act of Mayan people leaving those grand cities was revolutionary in a
1: sense. And that's the thing. It's it's the entropy factor I'm talking about. It's, It's the time factor that when empire falls, the space for for transformation occurs you know like in the European context the Roman Empire was an awful thing it decimated northern Europe and it like destroyed so many things and cultures so why do we talk about it being gone as a dark age you know could it be that maybe when it was just a bunch of like villages and towns that were running themselves isn't that a form of utopia almost where people can, like, live for themselves and manage themselves and live in a community and allocate resources for themselves and build sustainable lives that aren't based on these, like, far-flung trade networks, you know? Where you build a material culture out of your, like, existence, you know? So, I don't know, like, I'm I'm intrigued in these ideas of... of collapse, of of indigenous apocalypse, as, as I've started calling it in some of my writings. But for me, the indigenous apocalypse is actually an act of liberation or a moment of liberation where once the systems of capitalism and of global trade and of national government, if they collapse, I think, like, yes, bad things will come out of it. But in the end, it will maybe save the world, you know, and save us. You know, we can... uh, Probably not us, you know, like whoever comes after us in this moment. And that's what I mean by the circularity of time, you know, we will be here, but we will also not be here. Um, Maybe it's there that liberation will happen. Because it seems like it's so impossible, you know, like how do you face something like the U.S. government? How do you face something like industry or a multinational corporation? It seems impossible, you know. But things die and things fade away. Nothing lasts except for humanity, you know. And And it's... Humanity will always make it through. Like, we're a tenacious bunch. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm serious. I, I mean, like, there's oh, been tenacity. moments where humanity has almost gone extinct, and it just didn't. Hmm. You know, because it's a very tenacious species. So, I guess that's that on that. <laughs> I really like
2: that. Cool. So, um, time is our bitter ally.
1: It is. Time the is. name
2: of your next show,
1: maybe. Actually, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> time is our bitter ally. I like that. It's good.
0: That marks the end of our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. From the beginning to the end of our feature, that was Nina Simone with the rendition of 22nd Century. And with that, this podcast was made possible by producer Brenny Aceituno, producer Francisco Morales, co-creators Alan Luna and Julie Chu, fellow participating artists Larissa Rogers, Jackie Mesquita, Kate Clark, our organization Casa Familiar, and I'm your host, Hector Castro. Thank you for listening and tuning in. See you later.